We're recording. Cool. Hello and welcome to Fragments of Fear, a podcast dedicated to the discussion and appreciation of the lesser known Charlie. I'm Rachel Nisbet and with me, my co-host. Peace, stop. You okay today? Yeah, I'm doing fine. I um, I just had a little sleep before we started recording, so <laughs> slightly groggy, but it was well needed, so I'm really excited to talk about the film. Yeah, it's going to be a good one, I think. I think there'll be some interesting discussions, so it's good that you're all prepped with a power nap before we go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, we usually have our kind of light-hearted catch-up at this point and talk about what we've been up to, but um, we thought we'd forgo our usual catch-up as we've had some really upsetting news this week. Um, which has deeply shocked both of us, as well as you know the whole Italian film community online. Um, so very tragically, Daria Nicolaudi passed away on the 26th of November. So very sad and unexpected news. And we just wanted to really pay a short tribute to her and her contribution to Italian cinema, didn't we? Yeah, she's such a big part of, of our fandom of Eurocult in general. And she was fairly young. We haven't learned much details about her death, but 70 is no age these days, is it? It was very young. You know, 70, you don't expect somebody to go at that age. Um, I believe there's reports that it was a heart attack but I'm oh. not 100% sure do we need to verify that in the Italian news but yeah you say no time at all to go and very sad that she's left us and I'm sure she'd have so much more to give if she'd you know been alive a bit longer yeah. it was so fascinating to hear her insights and I mean nobody really had a bad word to say about her there's been lots of people um, sharing stories of meeting her and talking to her and they all said how wonderful she was as a person did you see that interview with um, Claudio Argento that I posted yeah um, somebody sent it to me as well on Twitter and I just thought it was really brilliant to see that um, a really lovely kind of tribute he had some lovely things to say about her you know when you see things like that and people that knew her and they talk so kind of passionately about her and it's really nice to see her pay tribute to in that manner yeah yeah and it's, it's funny because I mean everybody's been you know sharing all their favorite roles and you know talking about her immense contribution to Eurocult cinema and obviously a lot of mention of her films with Argento but it, it kind of makes you realize like how important it is to recognize her work outside of those collaborations as well and you know, unfortunately women in horror aren't always given their due and I think that's certainly true in the realm of Italian horror and you know you've got the likes of Eliza Brigante and Rosella Judy and they're rarely really mentioned are they so it's nice that with Daria we've been able to kind of celebrate her work not only as an actress but as a screenwriter and for her creative contributions yeah with Argento and without you know we've got her contributions with Luigi Cozzi with you know Paganini Horror and the Black Cat and then you know her coming up with the genesis of the idea of you know Suspiria and Inferno so yeah obviously she was this muse to Argento and that's something we want to celebrate but it's really nice to kind of see everyone also focusing on her as a creative person in her own right as well and yeah, like yeah. being able to understand what she contributed more than just, you know, acting, which obviously was great, her acting roles. Yeah, because her imprint on Suspiria and on Inferno, even though she's not credited as a screenwriter on that film, it's an indelible impression, really. And her ideas are at the very heart of these films, the foundation of which they rest on. So such a major influence. And I mean, I sometimes think she's a little bit overlooked because... Obviously, although she was a beautiful woman, she's never lumped in with Edwish or Barbara or the Rosalbas. It's, it's almost like her accomplishments as an actress puts her in another league than many of her contemporaries. Yeah, absolutely. And she did do more kind of um, serious fare, didn't she? Like Camilo Bene's Salome and she did um, Elio Petri's Properties No Longer a Theft. So she actually did these kind of almost like art house kind of intellectual style films as well, um, which yeah. is something that, yeah, like her peers didn't do so much of. And 
yeah, she wasn't just, oh, I can't remember, I've got to say the word later, but yeah, she wasn't just seen as this like great beauty. There was a lot more there. Yeah. But as you say, it's just one of those things where people tend to get reduced down to the, you know, these parts. Yeah, and she didn't fit into that sort of mould, really. She was a really talented actress and did some, some great screen work. I've revisited a few films since her passing now. Obviously love her roles in, in the Argento films, mm -hmm. but I felt like I wanted to revisit um, properties no longer a theft, shock. And then I hadn't seen it before, but I watched uh, Paganini Horror last night. Oh, right. Okay, I didn't really have seen it before. That's cool. Did you enjoy it? I mean, it's not exactly like, yeah, <laughs> the leagues of properties yeah. no longer a theft, but yeah, it's it's fun. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> he likes hesitating. Maybe not, Rachel. <laughs> it, it's not. It's not the. It's not her greatest role, but obviously one that she had a part in. I think she had like credit for special collaboration. Yeah. On the script or something, yeah. something along those lines. I haven't seen Notorious Scola's Macaroni with um, Jack Lemmon and Marcello Mastriani. Have you seen? No, that? I've never seen that one either. Um, so that's probably yeah. one to put on the list. It made me want to. I've seen bits of it before. You know, Retrato di Donna Felita or Velata, the TV series she did with Nino Castelnovo. Yeah, um, okay. kind of makes me want to kind of go back to that. But yeah, like you have not seen that one, so maybe it's worth revisiting some of these performances. Well, not revisiting, visiting them full stop or revisiting. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned shock there because that's probably one of her best performances actually isn't it really i think so too yeah it's an interesting role to i mean because that film pretty much relies on her yeah very much carries it doesn't she she very much carries it so a great role and and a film that could certainly do with an upgrade of that disc yeah that's absolutely crying out for one and I mean, it's really, obviously it's devastating that she's passed and hopefully that, you know, something will be put out like a film like that and then we'll get like some sort of tribute feature or something that really like talks about her career at length so we can get a sense of everything that she did in the kind of the realm of Italian genre cinema, but also, you know, outside of it and get a sense of who she was as a person beyond, yeah, the Argento Muse title. Yeah. I looked at her IMDb and she did a surprising amount of TV work as well. It's difficult with TV work because not very much of it is available or and certainly not available subbed so that, that kind of work sort of passes you by yeah it's like we we kind of talked talk about it from time to time don't we like we we're always discovering bits and pieces that we're just not aware of like i think this is totally off topic but i like was it the other month i messaged you about that fabio testi tv series where yeah. he's a skipper on a boat or something and it's like oh, you yeah. just never heard of it before no. Um, so we try and like learn about these things but yeah for the reasons that Peter's mentioned it's not always easy I mean even if we watch them they're not going to likely going to be in English so it's a bit of a stumbling block yeah certainly it's one thing sitting down to watch a 90 minute film but a completely different thing to sit through a I don't know four or five hour long tv series in Italian especially yeah especially when they're so dialogue heavy yeah so which would you consider being her favorite performance of yours is it shock? I would say kind of shock and deep red. Probably quite obvious yeah. choices. I'm not. I mean, I really like in properties no longer a theft, but I think there's like an emotional attachment to those other roles. So yeah, if I had to choose between deep red and shock, I don't know. Maybe I still would go deep red just for my affection of the film. But I mean, shock's arguably you know her most uh, emotive and interesting performance. What about you? Yeah, same here. Really like her role in Tenebrae, even though it's a slightly smaller one, but I think she's great there as well. She had a great range as an actress as well. I mean, considering these films and her role in Phenomena. So she was a very talented actress. Yeah, very much so. Could play all those different kind of facets of her various characters. Yeah, I really like her in Phenomena. I know it's not like her best role, but I like how she can just kind of go balls to the wall mad in it. For sure. Something quite different in her filmography. And certainly in the kind of Italian horror range. Yeah. So... 
an actress that will miss a lot and that we're really grateful for all her wonderful contributions to Eurocult and to cinema in general. Yes, it's it's very sad, isn't it? But we've always got those films and we're always going to champion her work on this podcast anyway. And I'm sure other people will forever be praising her fantastic career. So we've always got that. Yeah. Rest in peace, Daria. Yeah, rest in peace to Daria and our thoughts are with her family and friends. It's not easy to make a, a good transition from talking about a Eurocult legend who's just passed away to patrons, but we just want to say that we are, as always, very grateful to our patrons and all our listeners, but the patrons enable us to pay for hosting and tech and some research material, and we're really glad to include George Eduardo Ospina into the fold, so welcome aboard. Welcome. We know that times are tough, but we do our utmost to provide you with well-researched episodes. And as a patron, you get an extra episode per month where we discuss other Jalo-related matters, like in last month's episode where we discussed our fantasy casting Jalo. Ombre Illuminati sugli artigli di una chia. So shout out to Massimo e Massimo and Eric Adrian Lee for the beautiful glues of music and for the breathtakingly beautiful poster. Yeah, that was amazing. And that was probably one of my favourite Patreon episodes we recorded. That was really fun. Yeah, it was great fun to, to talk about that film. And we've had some great feedback on both the episodes and, of course, the poster is so eye-catching as well, isn't it? Yeah, because quite a few people want prints of it and I thought we'll be the only ones like that want a print. So I think we're going to look into that, aren't we? Yeah, I started looking into it, but it's a jungle. But we'll um, we'll get there eventually. Yeah, and we've got some other kind of Patreon and um, Fragments of Fear stuff that we're, we've got in the works. So give us a, a month or two and we'll have that properly sorted, I think. Yeah. And before we get started on this episode's film, as always, we'll be discussing all aspects of the film. So there will be spoilers in this episode. So with that said, do you want to tell us which film we're going to discuss and why? Yeah, we're going to be doing uh, La Contrafigura, a.k.a. The Double, which is a shallow from 1971, directed by Romolo Ghieri. Contrafigura is, as a title, roughly translates to the stand-in and derives from the film's literary source, La Contrafigura by Libero Biaghetti, which was the winner of the Via Reggio Literary Prize in 1968. But um, I'm sure you will go into that in more detail in the discussion of the film's production history, so I will leave it at that. The film's source material undoubtedly explains a lot about where the film lies in terms of its themes and ideas, which are very detailed and go beyond what we would typically expect to see in an Italian thriller of this period. We've discussed the early 1970s as a golden era for the shadow, with a certain type of narrative, trope-heavy structure taking hold, obviously with exceptions, and the double is very much the exception here. 
It's not particularly typical of an early 1970s shadow, maybe bar the obvious comparison of Short Night of Glass Dolls. But um, in my opinion, it feels more in tune with the late 1960s shadows, certainly due to the political and sociological strands of the film, which echo what was going on in Italy and other countries in the late 1960s. And for those of you who listened to our episode on The Rage Within, we discussed some of these issues about the student protests and some of the intellectual posturing and ideas of the time and how these often manifested in films of the period. And there's a lot of focus on certain intellectuals, certain texts, which we'll probably discuss later on. And there's just an overall awareness exhibited through the characters of the film of political factions and ideas and how they relate to our lives. In this case, as is the case with many Shelley, it's lensed through bourgeoisie characters and there's evident criticisms here of some of their political approaches and their words versus their actions. So in regards to context, I think it's important to bear in mind that The Double is a bit more political as a film, or at least grounded in certain ideas and intellectual thought, and perhaps it leans more towards an art house sensibility. It might be classed as somewhat of a quasi-jalo or an unconventional shallow. Um, it might even seem a bit pretentious to some, but then again... We do have these classic 60s by the pool elements, almost Lenzian style flourishes, alongside moments which could be viewed as almost melodramatic. So there's varying degrees here in terms of the components that make up the film, and it's somewhat of a hangover from the politically tinged counterculture films of the late 1960s. That was a really great um, introduction to the film, I think. Well, thank you. That's very kind. And uh, a lot of topics there that we can really get into. Yeah, just kind of laying the groundwork for what's to come. So do you want to tell us a wee bit about the director? Certainly an interesting name that we don't really hear much about, just a name in passing, really. Yeah, another slightly unfairly overlooked name, which is perfectly on brand for this podcast. <laughs> Romolo Girolami was born in Rome on December 5th, 1931. 17 years younger than his older brother Marino and the Girolamis would end up being something of an Italian film dynasty with Romolo, Marino, Marino's son Enzo G. Castellari as well as Enzo's brother Ennio who ended up being an actor. Due to the age difference between Romolo and Marino, Romolo was actually closer in age to his nephew than his older brother Marino. These would all three work in genre cinema, each with their own sort of focus. Romolo started directing in the 1950s, but he's most well-known for his hard-hitting crime films like Roma Violenta and horror classic Zombie Holocaust. Enzo would, of course, concentrate on action films and the adrenaline-filled cinema, with high points being High Crime, The Big Racket, and his appreciated post-apocalypse films. Romolo would take a slightly different route. He'd started working on his brother's sets in the early 50s and worked steadily throughout the 50s and early 60s as an assistant director under his own name for directors like Sergio Corbucci. According to the IMDb, his first film was Beauty on the Beach, but in reality it was assembled by outtakes and bits from other films by his older brother, with Romola's name only being attached for tax purposes. So his actual directorial debut was Western's Seven Magnificent Guns in 1966. By his second film, also Western, Johnny Yuma, he didn't need to use an English-sounding name, and to avoid any confusion with his older brother, he took his mother's maiden name. Guerrieri. And when we get to the double in 1971, Guerrieri had directed six films. His first three were westerns, I've already mentioned Seven Magnificent Guns and Yoni Yuma. The third was $10,000 for a Massacre. Opening at the height of the spaghetti western boom, these all did decent business, making between 450 and 530 million lire each. Guerrieri had also directed the first properly commercially successful jelly, Sweet Body of Deborah, with Sean Sorel and Carol Baker in 1968. And that's a film that you and I could talk about for quite some time so we'll leave that for now but 
we'll definitely return to it yeah quite soon right <laughs> absolutely i know i was thinking that it's like how much are we going to touch on that and i thought yeah you'll probably do a wee bit but that'll probably be an episode and well that will be an episode in itself certainly will his next project after that was the very good noir inspired detective story undetective starring franco nero and florinda balkan in 1969 the film that romila had made just before the double was vittorio gasman vehicle the divorce from 1970 which was up until that point one of his most successful films making 867 million lira at the box office which brings us up to 1971 and La Contrafigura or The Double. Like you mentioned it's based on Libro Biagiretti's 1968 novel by the same name. The rights for this award-winning novel had been snapped up quite quickly and it was about to head into production for Claudia Cinematografica as early as August 1968 with debuting director Giulio Paradisi at the helm. But less than a month later it was reported that Florestano Vancini had signed on to direct the film in Tanzania with a script by Sergio Bazzini and Antonio Saguera but nothing came of these plans and it wasn't until a couple of years later in early 1971 that it was reported that Guerrieri would direct the film for producer Gino Mordini. Sauro Scavolini wrote the story treatment and collaborated with Sandro Continenza on the script and Scavolini the big brother of A White Dress for Mariale and Nightmare director Romano Scavolini had worked with Romolo since the mid-60s writing both Yoli Yuma and $10,000 from Massacre together and he also directed interesting Jalo Love and Death in the Garden of Eden starring Erica Blanc and Peter Lee Lawrence. Sandro Continenza had been active since the 50s written about 100 scripts or something like that and in terms of Jalo he'd already written Murder by Music and Freda's The Iguana with a Tongue of Fire and he would also go on to write scripts for Paul Nashley Jallo, Seven Murders for Scotland Yard and Sergio Pastore's Crimes of the Black Cats. You know that was a great treatment of him as a director because I presume a lot of people won't even know about his connection with Castellari and, and his brother as well because you know it's like this directing kind of dynasty but I think because of the different names if you're just having a cursory glance you wouldn't really know about their connections or if you hadn't really read up on it. No exactly. I was doing something on Enzo Castellari um, recently as you know and it was really interesting to find out about those dynamics and how they were all kind of brought up together on film sets and kind of learned their crafts from one another very much like directors who did like every job on the on the production um, which is really um, interesting very much like a family. Yeah and it's interesting as well how they've sort of chosen a slightly different um, approach to their cinema. Enzo and his father Marino were sort of closer to each other I think in in terms of which kind of cinema they did mm-hmm. the sort of more adrenaline filled action filled cinema and Romolo chose a slightly different route which we'll explore a bit more now but do you want to tell us a little bit about the film for those who haven't seen it for a while yeah it's going to be a brief synopsis it probably actually doesn't outline much of what happens just due to the nature of the film so I'll, I've just tried to write something that discusses the film briefly but I don't go into like much of the plot if that makes sense yeah so um One evening on his way home, architect Giovanni is shot by a mysterious stranger in the parking garage of his building. Wounded and likely dying, Giovanni relives the events that led to his fatal shooting as he tries to piece together key moments in his recent history, interspersed with fragments of fantasy. As reality and illusion blend together, Giovanni recounts his strenuous marriage with his young wife Lucia, his tempestuous affair with her mother Nora, and the mysterious death of young hippie Eddie. 
Will recalling these key moments in relationships provide Giovanni with the identity of his killer, or do they reveal far more about Giovanni's fractured state of mind and desperation to find meaning in his life prior to his untimely demise? Quite vague. <laughs> yeah, but looking at the film, it is not a plot-heavy giallo in that sense, is it? No, so. it's, yeah, our approach to like discussing the film will probably be quite different with this one, just due to it being more thematically led. Yeah, but let's start off with talking a little bit about who's in it. We're going to leave Giovanni who's played by Sean Sorel, we're going to leave him for now and return to him in a future episode, aren't we? Yeah, it's, the problem with these films is that a lot of actors pop up again and again and we, we're trying to make it so that we don't discuss everyone. So by, you know, like the later episodes, we're going, well, we've talked about this person here, we've talked about this person there. So we've tried to be creative about when we discuss certain figures so that we don't, yeah, use up all our material early on on them. Or we could just be honest and say that we forgot that we, we <laughs> thought that we talked about him. <laughs> Yeah, we were like, we've done we were, Jean Sorel, like, we've definitely done him before. And then it was like, what was it today or last night? It was like, oh no, we haven't. Yeah. We just feel like we've done him because we have mentioned him. We know him so well. We, yeah, he's, we're best pals with Jean, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's the reason we're not talking about him, but we're going to pretend it's because we're saving him for another one of his uh, works. Yeah, yeah, but we'll definitely return to him. <laughs> So, shall I start off with Lucia? Yeah, because she's arguably the second most important character here. So yeah, on you go. So, teenage bride Lucia was played by Eva Bigitta Olin in a role that at least had at least some parallels with her own life. Olin was born in Landskrona in southern Sweden on February 13th, 1950. Aged just 15, she managed to win both the Miss Teen Sweden title and appear in her first film, the short Javelin's Instrument, The Devil's Instrument for Gunnar Fischer. This short is available online, by the way, if anybody wants to check it out, you can check the show notes for a link. The Miss Teen Sweden title brought her to LA the following year as Sweden's representative, where she managed to win the title and become Miss Teen International in 1966. And the beautiful blonde, of course, attracted a lot of international attention, and it didn't take long until she was in an Italian production, Alberto Latuda's Don Giovanni in Sicily with Lando Busanca. Her next two films were Jali, two titles on the art house side of the spectrum, where she starred alongside Jean-Louis Tratignon, uh, Tinto Brass's Deadly Sweet from 1967, and Julia Questi's Death Laid an Egg the year after 1968. In 1967, she'd been tested along with a purported 3,000 other girls for the role of Candy in Christian Marquand's film by the same name. She was cast in the titular role and would be working with actors such as Marlon Brando, Richard Burton, James Coburn and Walter Matthau. And it really must have seemed like a short fire hit, a film that would propel her to international stardom, but instead it became a star-studded flop. Her next international production, Start the Revolution Without Me, in 1970, did quite poorly at the box office as well. So her chances of an American career were pretty much derailed there. Reading interviews from the time it doesn't seem like she minded too much she was still only 20 and she had met British author John Shadow which she had secretly married in Mexico during the filming of Candy and on June 15th 1969 they had a son Sean Rolf John. The following year, Shadow directed Olin in the film Microscopic Liquid Subway to Oblivion, his only film. There were, of course, talk of other American roles that she was offered. She was offered a role in the film The Condor with Jim Brown and Lee Van Cleef, which she passed on because of nudity. And there was talk of a Wuthering Heights adaption with Peter Fonda, but she never went back to Hollywood, instead appearing in films in, in Europe. Most well-known are probably Joe DeMarte, so Death Smiles on a Murderer and Jorge Graus, 
The Legend of Blood Castle. She also made a fairly interesting Un Vita Lunga Un Giorno before retiring from the business in 1973. Uh, her only other appearance since had been a small role in an Italian production, Stella's Favour, from 1996. She divorced Shadow in 1972 and went on to marry construction developer Cesare Palladino in 1974. And when she left the business, she had two daughters. One of them, Olivia Palladino, is the partner of Italy's current prime minister, Giuseppe Conte. A fact which Italian papers reported with some glee when the prime minister's mother-in-law had appeared in a film by Tinto Brass. (laughs) So... (laughs) And it looks, I didn't really get into it properly, but it looks like her husband might have had some recent run-ins with the law due to tax problems. Apparently, he owns some luxury hotels in Rome. That's so fascinating to hear like, your biography of her. And I did not know that at all about um, her daughter. So that's really interesting. That's something I feel like I need to um, go away and look up now. But um, yeah, like yeah. you say, like her career, it was just she was kind of shot into the stratosphere at such a young age and then kind of burned really brightly. And then obviously the, the production history around Candy and it's, well, I was going to say it's success it's kind of failure to be a success just a really interesting kind of case study in itself yeah but yeah so it's so strange because she did seem to be set for stardom and it all just kind of fell apart and she had all those attributes that you would think would have made her a star at least she wasn't too bothered by it but it's it, you know settled down so young as well and she kind of lived like two lives hasn't she yeah certainly it was a very short and intensive film career yeah, because I remember when I first heard about her and I was quite interested in, you know, reading this, that and the other. And this is years, years ago. And I just felt like, what happened to her? Like, where did she go? Because there wasn't yeah. much in the way of information. I mean, I don't know. Have you seen that film of hers from 1996? Stella's favourite. Yeah. No, I, I, look, I looked for it, but I couldn't find it. I don't think there's pictures or anything of it. No, I wasn't able to find any. She, seemed, she just seemed to kind of almost like disappear. So it was good yeah. to, to see her resurface on an extra because quite a lot of these actresses, and we'll probably get into this when we talk about Marilou in a minute, yeah, they just kind of disappear, don't they? And that's it. Yeah. And they're just, you know, living the life somewhere, married to some big shot. Always some kind of property developer or... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> executive, <laughs> politician. Some high flyer. I suppose that's the thing. You, like, we're saying, though, that she had a very, like, you know, short but bright career. And it sounds horrible to say, but you almost did have a short shelf life. Yeah. Circumstances of the time as well, because, you know, it was harder to make that transition into, like, other roles in the 80s, you know, maybe more towards television work. But, yeah, there's not a lot of opportunities. So I guess in that point in your life, the idea is to get as many films under your belt to then go away and get married and have children and, you know, live a life. I don't want to say live a life of leisure because that sounds condescending, but I would do the same, you know, it's that, like... Oh, in a hot, in a hot seat, I could sit and watch Jelly all day. Like, yeah, so you don't have to do any work ever again. Like, just like, well, the thing is, they've done their work. Uh, they've had you know successful careers, but then they've obviously decided to withdraw from the limelight. Who can blame them? Because there's probably not great career roles out there at that point. I mean, but she only worked for seven years. She was really famous in Sweden at that point. There was a lot of articles about her, but if you ask people nowadays, nobody's going to know who she is. So she's not really a name that has that kind of. Enduring icon kind of status. I doubt I could find more than a handful of friends who know who she is because of of their interest in Eurocult. But as for people without that special kind of interest, nobody would know who she is. I guess that's the thing in general, isn't it? Because I mean, we talk about someone like Edwige Fenech all the time. We're like, oh yeah, you know, she's this big star and big scream queen. But I think outside of that circle, relatively few people will know who she is. Obviously they do in Italy, but I mean, outside of Italy, I don't think she's particularly well known. Like, no, yeah, it's, no, out, like, it's, it's funny because like you say, like, of, like everyone does know who she is in these niche circles, but... In these circles, yeah. Yeah. Which is a shame because it's always the same same icons isn't it 
you kind of like I like to see the variety of different you know starlets of the time yeah which kind of brings us to our next actress I guess yes so we also have the character of Nora who plays Lucia's mother and Nora is played by Lucia Bosse now Lucia Bosse was born in Milan in 1931 and like with our previous episode on Strip Nude for Your Killer in which we discussed Nino Castelnovo, um, Bosse worked in a bakery prior to finding fame. In fact it was while she was working at the bakery that she was spotted by Luciano Fisconti who vowed to help her in her acting career. She got her big break aged 17 when she won the Miss Italy competition in 1947 beating Gina Lolo Brigida to the crown. And we've mentioned that Italian actresses often came to prominence through the Miss Italy competition and there's actually an Italian word that's used as Describe these actresses that either came up through beauty competitions or made a name for themselves as a result of their curvaceous beauty, and that's maggiorata, which roughly translates to the increased, and that's a reference to their buxom appearance. <laughs> I hate using the word buxom, it makes me feel like an old man, but yeah, that's, that's what I mean. <laughs> it was a term coined in the 1950s and was applied to the likes of Gina Lola Brigida as well as American actresses such as Mae West, but it stretched into the decades thereafter and was used to describe the next wave of beauty such as Edwige Fenech and Serena Grande. But I think it's quite important to detail that Bosse was part of that set of women because it somewhat accounts for her role in the double as a member of this elite group of Italian beauties and how that's reflected in her character as this older yet very glamorous woman who her daughter Lucia is somewhat of a faded copy of. So in the aftermath of winning Miss Italy, Bosse moved into acting and as we all know by now, it was very commonplace to make that transition between modelling and acting and that'll be the case again for the next bio that I'll be doing. So Bosse moved to Rome in this period and began testing for roles. Her debut was in Giuseppe de Santis's Under the Olive Tree in 1950, which led to another starring role in his 1952 film Rome 11 O'Clock. She also worked on two comedy pictures during this period with Luciano Emmer, Girl on the Spanish Steps and Paris is Always Paris. But perhaps most notably, she was cast in two Antonioni films, Story of a Love Affair in 1950. 50 and The Lady Without Camellias, a role turned down by Sofia Loren and Gina Lollobrigida. So during this period, Bosse became very much involved in the neorealist movement. Whilst filming on location in Spain for Death of a Cyclist, she met the bullfighter Louis Miguel Dominguin. They fell in love and got married and Bosse made the decision to quit acting to be a wife and a mother, although she did make a small appearance in Jean Cocteau's Testament of Orpheus in 1960 alongside her husband. Pablo Picasso was also in the film and he was actually the godfather to Bosse's daughter Paola and Bosse's son Miguel, um, who became a pop star and actor, had Ernest Hemingway as a godfather. So Bosse and her husband ran in very prestigious circles. And he was actually friends with um, General Franco, uh, which reportedly embarrassed Bosse, not surprisingly. <laughs> but their marriage wasn't to be. Bosse tired of her husband's philandering ways and they divorced in 1968. And she tentatively returned to acting shortly after. And the double is part of her filmography on her return, alongside a spate of other films, typically Spanish or Italian productions. She was in Fellini, Satracon, and a host of more genre-aligned fare, such as The Legend of Blood Castle and Something Creeping in the Dark. But she appeared in a varied selection of films in the 1970s, and lots of them are really interesting watches, and there's some real gems in there. In her later years, Bosse continued to work, but she was semi-retired by the 1990s. Her last role was in 2013 in One More Time. As an elderly woman, what perhaps really made Bosse stand out was her vibrant cobalt blue hair and love of angels, and she always came across as quite the character. Sadly, Bosse died this year in March, age 89, from pneumonia complicated by COVID, but she leaves quite a legacy due to her involvement with some of the titans of Italian cinema. That was really interesting because she's one of those faces that you don't really know all that much about, and it just seems so surreal to see 
such a glamorous looking woman working in a bakery. <laughs> Can you imagine? I think she worked in a in a law office prior to the bakery, but the bakery is kind of what struck me, just this idea of Visconti, like walking in and she's there surfing up some focaccia or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't go too much into her, you know, cinematic career and really get into the roles because I just found it's so fascinating the kind of company that she kept, you know, marrying a bullfighter who was friends with Franco and she knew Picasso and Ernest Hemingway. I mean, what a life. Very glamorous. Oh, certainly. And a very good actress. Can't remember now where I read it, but um, I read somewhere that when she filmed, sometimes the technical staff were so like in awe of her performances that they just stood mesmerized watching her act. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's funny because, you know, we say like, oh, she came up from this beauty competition, as did many of them, but you know, serious actresses as well. They're not just, you know, beauties. They could act, you know, Sophia Loren and Gina Lola Brigida and all these people that we mention, you know, as these great beauties. I mean, they had the acting chops behind them. Yeah, for sure. I just love seeing pictures of her, you know, like in recent years with that blue hair and she was almost like a David Lynch character. I don't even know, maybe there's something, I don't know when she started doing her hair like that, but yeah. Interesting women. Yeah, I've got um, a new Blu-ray of Dory of a Love Affair sitting in my to-watch pile, so I need to go back and watch that There you that go, now. that's cool. Yeah, I have to add that to the list or move it up the pile. It's always moving up the pile, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And speaking of beauties, you've got another one for us, haven't you? I know, a bit of a similar kind of background here. More of a supporting character in the film. I mean, she doesn't have a huge part, but we thought she was worth um, discussing because she's quite an interesting character, isn't she? So we then have Marilou Tolo, who plays Marie. Uh, Marilou Tolo was born in Rome in 1944. She began her career at a very early age. Um, She started modelling in 1959 when she was only 15 for the Italian stylist Emilio Schubert. He was known as the tailor of Diva and created clothes for their likes of Rita Hayworth, Sophia Loren and Brigitte Bardot. During this period, Tolo also modelled for the Italian fashion designer Valentino, who later remarked that Tolo was the only woman he had ever loved, so she made quite the impression at a very young age. Um, The following year, in 1960, age 16, she made her cinematic debut in Filch's musical Howlers of the Dock and steadily began to work, finding fame and popularity in the 60s in Pepla such as Colossus and the Amazon Queen and The Magnificent Gladiator. And you can certainly see why she was in demand in these sorts of films. She very much had that look which translated to the typical female roles in the Peplum. Tolo also found popularity in the James Bond-style spy films of the 1960s, but also during this period she worked with some of the great Italian directors such as De Sica and Fellini. Also worth mentioning that in the mid-1960s, she was in Roberto Mori's thriller Night of Violence. Marilou was thought of as an Italian Elizabeth Taylor. She bared a striking resemblance to the English-American actress, and she was very beautiful, very much a charismatic and enigmatic woman, attracting the interests of many men. In fact, Serge Gainsbourg even wrote a song about her entitled Marilou. So you get the impression that even from an early age, she was just kind of enrapturing men left, right and centre, even though like a gay man like Valentino was you know, spellbound by her. So it's quite interesting just to see like the effect she had on various men. In the 1970s, she continued to steadily work uh, very much in genre fair. In the early part of the decade, she had a relationship with Dario Argento, appearing in his 1973 historical comedy, The Five Days, as well as in the eyewitness episode of Argento's Door into Darkness in 1973, which we talk about on that episode that we have on our Patreon exclusive content. Tolo was the leading lady in Tino Valerio's My Dear Killer in 1972, and in the same year, she played Simone in Camilo Bazzoni's Shadows on Scene. In the double, she acted alongside Jean Sorel in a supporting role. The two had previously worked together on another shadow in 1970, Salvatore Sampieri's Kill the Vatted Calf and Roast It, in which Tolo was the leading actress. In the mid-1970s, she met the film producer Robert Vellin and they moved to the United States. 
and she appeared in a few productions stateside, including a role in an episode of Charlie's Angels. However, Tolo still acted in Italian productions in the 80s, including Sergio Martino's The Scorpion with Two Tails in 1982, and she returned to her roots in ancient historical productions with a stint in the TV miniseries The Last Days of Pompeii in 1984. In the 1980s, Tolo had a rather volatile relationship with Prince Alfonso of Bourbon Dampierre. After the relationship ended, she met a Mexican tycoon and the pair married shortly after, with Tolo making the decision to retire from acting in 1985. Her last role was in the television series Sogni y Bisogni. On retiring, Tolo moved to America with her husband, dividing her time between their homes in LA and Mexico. She's still alive, but very much out of the public eye nowadays. That's that. So another one that comes up through kind of modelling and... <laughs> and ends up with tycoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a successful career for, a short, for X number of years and then marrying a tycoon. Yeah. I think he owns a, a TV channel or studio or something. So I think serious money there. And a prince. That's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad at all. We're just going to briefly cover the husband of Marie and the other half of that swinging couple, Roger, who was played by Silvano Tranquilli, an immediately recognisable face to all fans of Italian genre cinema. Tranquilli was born on August 23rd, 1925 in Rome. He graduated from L'Accademia d'Arte Dramatica Pietro Sharoff, the first private acting school apparently in Rome, mm-hmm. founded in 1946 by Aldo Rendin and the first to use the Stanislavski method. So after graduating, Tranquilli started working in the theatre and television dramas where he appeared extensively before starting his prolific film career in the early 60s. And as I said, a well-known face to Jello lovers. He appeared in a number of films like Cavara's The Black Belly of the Tarantula, Duccio Tessari's The Bloodstained Butterfly, Silvia Mardi's Smile Before Death, and So Sweet, So Dead, as well as many, many Poliziotesky. He passed away on May 10th. 1997 at the age of 71. There's there's not so much to say about individuals like him but I think it's so worthwhile like covering his career even if it's not as extensive as some of the others because they're these people that tend to fly under the radar. We know their faces and we know like kind of the films that they were in but we're, we're not really very knowledgeable about, about their lives and other kind of aspects of their careers so it's really insightful to hear how they come up and enter the industry and what other work they've done and this is what's so sad because when these people pass away these stories are going to be lost forever and that's why somebody like Eugenio Ecolani's work is so important in interviewing these people and um, making sure to get as many many of these stories I know he does such fantastic work doesn't he and it's you kind of want them to just go and round up everyone and do as many interviews as possible. And it's always positive to see the work that he does. And I mean, it's mainly him. Other people um, obviously do interviews as well. Federico Cadillo as yeah. well, who does a lot of uh, films, a lot of extras. Yeah, of course. It's just unfortunate with COVID as well. That's really reduced kind of people's ability to film or it is getting better now. And like Eugenio is always out and about doing bits and pieces. But you just want to capture as many of these stories as possible and these lesser known figures. Right, shall we get stuck in with a film? Yeah, so let's discuss the devil. I'm sure there's lots of interesting things to touch on here. So the film starts off with uh, Sean Sorel's character Giovanni driving to some upbeat music playing and after the credits we see a very happy looking Sean Sorel pulling into the parking garage of this brutalistic looking building and as he's about to park a man steps out from the shadows and the camera rapidly cuts closer and closer in on the man and making it obvious that Giovanni in some way recognises him. The older man pulls out a gun of his briefcase and he fires. As soon as the shot is fired the action moves into slow motion 
second, the first shot misses Sorel, and then the second and third hits him, and the older man watches as Sorel pivots and falls to the ground next to his car. And we get these quick flash cuts of people in Sorel's life, events that have transpired, and ends with, with him finding the dead body of a young man before we sort of firmly settle in time and space in Morocco, where Sorel and his young wife, Lucia, are spending time on the beach. It's a really intriguing start, I think, and as, as you mentioned before, it's one that brings Short Night of Glass Dolls to mind, since that film also starts off with Sorel possibly dying, and in a similar vein with quick cuts as well to what has transpired earlier, and I think it's a great format that really piques the viewer's interest. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it immediately commands your attention. It's quite unconventional in terms of, you know, what we're typically used to. Obviously, yeah, we're making that comparison with Short Night of Glass Dolls, but um, yeah, really radically quite different. And and this is actually before Short Night of Glass Dolls. Yeah, because I think you, you immediately make that comparison, but then when you check yeah. the like information about the filming and like release dates, you realise, like, no, this is prior and it's obviously you know derives from a different source and it's not just a kind of case of imitation which you know you know what happens with these films but it's a very bold narrative structure and I think it it's one that works incredibly well in highlighting the mindset of Giovanni and setting up the film for the various themes and ideas that take place it's almost kind of like a Chinese box structure isn't it with these different temporal yeah. planes and you know things kind of moving towards time well different time periods and kind of exists on these different levels so very clever but I think it's one that requires like multiple watches to fully unravel yeah for sure you do get that peeling back don't you of the different layers as the film goes on and you start to kind of work out in your mind the structure and also what's real and what's fantasy or you think you do <laughs> yeah exactly because the flashbacks in the film they sort of drip feed you information of what has happened and as you say it leaves the first time viewer slightly disoriented since you're not really quite sure if the scenes where Ed is found dead or is killed are real or not there's this kind of dreamy atmosphere and these moments of Giovanni fantasizing how he will dispatch Eddie but as we said by by 1971 this would always stand out because the film in vogue at the moment was the Argento inspired Jalo which was obviously the most commercially viable option and as you said this is very much the 1960s era thriller so you can sort of understand why it doesn't work for some people and why they fail to see the greatness of this film because it doesn't tick all that many boxes when it comes to the Jalo tropes but you and I have never had a problem with these more Le Diabolique inspired film of the 60s that centred around these mind games and less focused on set pieces and murders but even compared to Guerrier's own influential The Sweet Body of Deborah or Lenz's thrillers this stands out as a film with thriller elements that don't really lean into genre tropes at all but I do hope that now that Lenz's films are out on Blu-ray as well that people will reevaluate them and hopefully also sort of provide a better understanding of how films like this form the genre um, and how it's a sort of slightly different strand of Jali and that understanding will hopefully make people appreciate those films and this film more. Absolutely yeah it's about where it slots in and the kind of pantheon of different styles of Italian thrillers and like say people be become very focused on this very Argento kind of inspired giallo or even look at you know the, like Blood and Black Lace and the different templates of, of those directors and they they sometimes dismiss these films and and like you said before I can understand why people might not like this I mean it's certainly more art house and experimental like in its sensibility I mean it's a film that yeah. recalls to me almost something like Death Laid an Egg I mean yeah. I know they're not 
massively similar but just something about that kind of feel and the intellectual posturing and some of the like editing choices you know like you're talking about that opening scene and the way we've got those like quick cuts and flashes of different things happening it reminds me a wee bit of that or even you could even say something like autopsy with those that opening with the different cuts of what's going on in different places or like here obviously it's presented as kind of fragments of memory yeah but yeah it's just would be nice if people would understand like the, the context of a film like this and yeah where it does fit and I, I don't know if it suffers because it's from 1971 and people have a certain expectation like they would probably accept it more if it was from the late 60s yeah i think so too i think it's maybe yeah the it appears as something that it's not or people have certain kind of preconceived notions of what is we've already established that it's um, a jala that's not as concerned with set pieces and all the trimmings of the argenta inspired jalo and it's a film that relies a lot more on on different themes so do you want to get into some of the themes here yeah i'll just take a uh, well i was gonna say take a wee moment it'll be about longer than a wee moment but i just thought it was really worth kind of discussing the character of giovanni and some of the themes presented through him so i think what's important to consider in the double is that the mystery is very much secondary in terms of the film's focus it actually serves to underline giovanni's existential crisis which is arguably really what the film is about so the double is you said certainly it isn't a traditional murder mystery um, not only in terms of its unconventional narrative style but also in the way that the mystery is really just set up to examine Giovanni's character his motivations feelings of inadequacy and overall frustrations and yeah that's potentially why the film is somewhat divisive um, the mystery is almost largely unimportant and um, used as a way to uncover underlying aspects of Giovanni's character and his relationships with the other characters in the film um, a theme that comes up in the double and is present in quite a few Italian thrillers of this period is this crisis of masculinity occurring in the latter half of the 20th century where men began to feel like their role in society was being challenged and that the sexual liberation of society was resulting in significant changes especially in relation to the role of women and what that meant for the future in regards to traditional gender roles and that's very much the case with Giovanni who is presented to the viewer as this deeply insecure man who feels threatened by his wife's sexually liberated and carefree youthful ways. She's younger than him, aged only 19, and is full of the joys of life, and is somewhat of a reminder to Giovanni of ageing and his feelings and the demise of his dreams. And there's clearly bitter resentment brewing um, there as a result. Giovanni feels incredibly threatened by the appearance of young American hippie Eddie, largely due to Lucia's interest in him. And she's clearly enamoured with Eddie's idealistic, carefree ways, which serve to highlight the differences between the two men. And when the couple look through the window of Eddie's car, Lucia wonders if he's a poet or a painter or involved in some other creative pursuit. And Giovanni chimes in saying, or he's an idealist, a drug dealer, to which Lucia asks, and what are you then? So Giovanni feels insecure in the presence of Eddie, jealous of his youth and his physical prowess, as well as his uninhibited intellectual ways, which serve as a reminder of his own failings. Giovanni is an architect who dreams of building a city of the future, but he's failed to get any work and relies on handouts from his father. So he's failed to even get close to his dreams, obviously exhibits idealistic tendencies in regards to his vision of the future, but is unable to achieve his goals. So I think he kind of turns on others like Eddie, who still have their hope and youth. So he kind of attacks his idealism because he's losing his own I would say. What's interesting about Giovanni is that he postures behind his intellectualism and purports to have these radical political ideas for example you know the discussion of communism on the yacht which we'll get into later but in actual fact he's very much a traditionalist who wants to have a very traditional marriage with his wife and who as I've said he resents for being carefree. So despite these conversations about sexual freedom and removing hierarchical structures it all feels very inauthentic with Giovanni really just wanting to possess Lucia 
which Lucia calls him out for, saying, the truth is, you're a possessive tyrant. You want to stop me having fun, being happy, being useful, being alive. And we see an argument between the couple where they argue over Lucia taking the pill, again highlighting that changing role of women's society, or at least women of that age in society, with Giovanni berating Lucia, asking why she's taking it, and then throwing her contraception out of the window, saying he'll stuff her with children, which is just such a horrible image when you watch it, like, I'll stuff you with children, which is vital. Um, But again, this feels like a very traditional view of um, women and their role. Giovanni objects to the pill and Lucia's sexuality and the culture of sexual liberation. He's desperate to impregnate her and take away her youth and vitality so she stops serving as a reminder of his lack of both of those attributes. And there's moments throughout the film where Lucia undermines her husband. She says he's too old to keep up with her. She openly gawks at Eddie and somewhat emasculates Giovanni, calling him a talker and a failure, which is most evident in the scene in which Giovanni tries to make love to Lucia, but is unable to maintain his erection, much to her frustration. He blames the incident on his tiredness, his depression, but it serves to highlight his character as this failure in all aspects of his life. This emasculated man, kept by his father, only wanted as a figurehead for his father's company, unable to have sex with his attractive wife, unable to allow his creative ideas to come to fruition, therefore desperately trying to manifest his creative impotence through his desire to reproduce which he also fails at which of course is psychologically devastating and a threat to his very own existence and kind of potentially leading to his own destruction so yeah Giovanni is a very insecure man he's obviously very threatened by his wife's kind of sexuality of the threat of Eddie and that all kind of manifests in these these key scenes between the two where we see these um tensions form in the relationship and it's largely due to Giovanni's own unhappiness Yeah, you touched on some great points there. I think there are some similarities, like we said, between this and The Rage Within, both obviously based on books. In this case, Libro Biagiretti's work is not readily available in English. I haven't had the pleasure of reading him. But from what I understand, he seems to deal with some of the same themes as Alberto Moravi, who wrote The Rage Within. So it makes sense that the film was somewhat reminiscent of each other. And like you say, the crisis of masculinity, but like in both films, exploring the the bourgeois virtues and vices as well, and the feelings of alienation subjects that were very much enraged during the late 60s due to filmmakers like Antonioni. There's some interesting similarities, I think, between Lilla in The Rage Within and Giovanni in how they both talk about their ideals and sort of claiming to be oppressed by a convention and eager to free themselves, but it's very much for show and they want to condemn their privileges but in reality, they're really unable to do without them at all, aren't they? Yeah, very much. I mean, the film contains somewhat of a critique, I would say, of the hypocrisies of the upper classes and the political masquerading that often takes place in these sorts of elite circles. And, and like you say, that's very much kind of a byproduct of kind of literature and cinema of, of this era. But also, you know, it's something that I think is quite pertinent to this day and age. You know, there's something about watching a film like this where I go, like, I've been to parties where we, I've heard these kind of discussions and with these people that, you know, are like essentially like trust funders who you know talk about like you know being communists and whatever yeah and there's a lot of discussions surrounding political ideologies in the film uh, most notably that discussion between Roger and Giovanni on the yacht where there's these ideological clashes and discussions of communism and anarchism I think it's interesting as well because they're kind of attributed to youth I think it's Roger I'm not 100% sure on this but I think it's Roger that says to Giovanni what do you do when you're not young anymore without money and a job and Giovanni's response I think is self-destruction 
you know, because he's a very privileged man, he can afford to have these views um, because he's not constrained by the realities of life. But as more of the narrative is revealed, we can see that these aspects of adulthood and kind of the realities of life are closing in on him. You know, his father's getting older, which serves as a reminder of his own age. His brother talks about the family business and we get the sense that there's change there. It's not profitable any, anymore and that Giovanni's comf- comfortable lifestyle won't last forever. So yeah, I'm just not wholly convinced about the convictions of Giovanni's political views like, like you've said or of, of being anything other than a sort of kind of political posturing his dislike of hippies just seems completely due to like eddie and people like him and this you know rampant jealousy that he has towards other people um and and like i mentioned above not above like I, like i mentioned before um he holds very um giovanni holds very traditional views despite presenting as somewhat of a radical um you know he talks about these progressive futuristic ideas and you know he's supposed to have all these kind of radical communist like um views but really that just highlights the hypocrisies in his, his character because the veil is solely lifting and we're seeing him as this traditionalist who wants to impregnate his wife who wants you know to have that very like routine kind of everyman lifestyle but just with all the trappings of the riches and whatever and I think the characters of Marie and Roger exist to challenge Giovanni's ideas or perhaps undermine the tenets that he holds true but fundamentally he rejects what they're offering um, which we see in that scene where Marie tries to proposition him and he smacks her lighter away and that kind of reveals that he's actually fairly conservative and won't be led into these sexual games by other people yeah so so very interesting politically and I think like you're right it's it's very much a case of like the rage within being somewhat of a companion piece out of all the films we've talked about just due to that political posturing and the hypocrisies that lie there yeah there's an interesting scene as well with he has an argument with his brother giovanni's chastising his brother for exploiting the workers and (laughs) and not sweating but he's so content to just accept the family money and he's really put out when his brother mentions that he has to do some work instead preferring to daydream about slapping Nora and instead of listening to his brother talk about the business so like you said he's a trust fund kid who's more or less sort of pretending to be an adult and an architect but lacks any kind of drive or enthusiasm for the work he's just content with having this title of architect but not really prepared to put in anywhere yeah like he's called an architect but like well he calls himself an architect but I think he like graduated from school and then he hasn't done anything since maybe one small project and he's just kind of dined out on that and you know calls himself this creative yeah which it wasn't even paid for yeah yeah exactly which wasn't even paid for and like kept by his father and he just seems to want to have it all and he seems very bitter and angry and jealous because he doesn't have everything handed to him on a plate but he's not prepared to do the work and he just wants to kind of use his ideologies to justify his own laziness yeah, when they come across Eddie's books with Mao Zedong and Malcolm X and when Sorel mocks him, he makes it sound like he's got this kind of ideological ground when in reality it's, it's just anchored in jealousy, really. Absolutely, and it's almost like a mirror that's being held up to him. And then you kind of wonder, I can almost imagine his house is filled with those like texts by Malcolm X and religion and the rise of capitalism, but they're probably just sitting on a shelf and like unopened because it's yeah. just the Paul posturing. And he ever says to him at some point, you're jealous of anyone who's who has something that you're missing and that Absolutely. seems to sum up Giovanni doesn't it yeah I think that's very much a key quote if you were to put out a quote that you felt was like the most kind of representative of his character that would be it and you can tell like he's 
incandescent with rage, rage at the fact that she's this young, you know, carefree young thing that doesn't seem to be too serious about anything and isn't very political, but like she can put the knife in, she perfectly understands his character and these resentments yeah. that he's harboring. His difficulty in reaching and communicating with his younger wife sort of leads him towards her mother instead. Should we talk a little bit about their relationship? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, it's almost like Giovanni develops this almost desperate fascination with Nora and Lucia's immaturity and sexually liberated ways frustrate him immensely and he seems to, to long for Nora who Lucia is a poor copy of I can't remember exactly the line in the film I don't know if you've got it down but she, she makes reference like Lucia makes reference to the fact she's a copy of her mother doesn't she the poor copy and Lucia reminds Giovanni of his age and with Nora he seemingly feels desirable and masculine and he dominates her whereas Lucia is a sexual failure so you see those different dynamics in his relationship between the two women but he develops this sort of dream image of who she is and like a fascination of her which is probably not who she is but it's dreamed up by him and idolizing her in a way isn't it? yeah absolutely it kind of feeds into that whole idea of you know he seems like a bit of a dreamer or you know he has certain like preconceived notions or ideals which are completely separated from the reality of his existence and it's quite bizarre really because he seems to kind of be projecting something that's just clearly not there which culminate in the scenes in morocco when he leaves his young wife who's sleeping in the hotel room and offers to walk his mother-in-law back she sort of sees where it's heading and says like i'm hide leave me alone but he makes his way into a room and he rapes her while claiming that he loves her which is a really hard to watch scene i think yeah it's, it's really grim isn't it and it's up until that point even though you know he's a pretty horrible character there's some sort of sympathy towards him i think that quickly evaporates at that moment and then we realize kind of what a horrible human being that he really is um and it's yeah. interesting to compare that rape scene with that flashback to when he first meets nora and the kind of nature of that first meeting and what he seems to see in it and then the reality of like what happens in Morocco I don't know if that makes sense yeah. You know what I mean? No. It's almost quite romantic. It's, it's difficult with this film as well because you don't know. These flashbacks are his. So it's difficult to know how much of a, an unreliable narrator he is. Yeah. When you're looking at these flashback scenes, was their initial meeting like he remembers it or was it something else? I think that's a, a really great point because you know we are shown these kind of imaginary murder scenes and which are almost presented in the same way as you know well, what we think is reality, but obviously it's like perceived reality. And yeah, yeah. something I see like that really makes you question actually if any of it is really valid or if it's all you know like lens through his own kind of um uh, well it, not all of the scenes but you do wonder if like some of the scenes are lens through you know his like idealized like view of the world and what he perceives to be true um and that seems quite interesting when he first meets Nora because we have that like I think it's in the house isn't it and they're almost like on two different levels yeah. it's quite a striking shot and it's almost this idea that almost like a stage or things aren't really something that doesn't feel natural about it after the rape, Nora heads back to Rome. And of course, Giovanni wants to go back as well. When they return to Rome, he can't find his mother-in-law and he sees this older man that, that eventually ends up shooting him, but it doesn't feel threatening in any way. Like you said, it's not a thrill-like atmosphere in any way. Again, very much like The Rage Within, but there's nothing really in, in terms of set pieces here. No, certainly not. And it's interesting that you mentioned that moment where the old man approaches him. I think his name's Bergamo. Maybe on the surface, you think that'd be quite like a, a cinema 
sinister scene with somebody shooting someone in a garage but in actual fact when you see the professor he's like trembling and sweating and he seems you know it takes a few shots to take him out and he's obviously flustered so there's something kind of emotive going on there which yeah takes away from that thriller element and you kind of focus on the drama element of what led him to shoot this character beyond like we obviously know he's a horrible person no later on in the film but you kind of think what is the crux of the the matter yeah apparently the novel is linear within a monologue and there are less thriller elements to it so the script was changed to beef up these elements Mm. even though there aren't all that much in in terms of thriller elements in the actual film but there are two murders even though you can you almost think of the film as a film with no murders or nothing in that way but well perhaps one murder and one case of manslaughter professor bergamo ends up killing eddie but we don't really find out too much about that situation yeah because that's something that almost seems unresolved in the film doesn't it um we're not entirely sure of what happens there no we only see it from giovanni's point of view when he finds eddie's body in nora's flat and with his vivid imagination he sort of concludes that she must have shot him and starts to clean up the crime scene and wraps the body in a sleeping bag and dumps the corpse in his brother's factory it kind of feeds into that idea doesn't it it's the film is not about the mystery per se but about the character of giovanni so in, in some ways there there is relevancy to the ending and kind of what transpires but on the whole it's not really that important it's more about what it no. says about these characters or specifically Giovanni yeah we find out that Nora is in the guilty party but Professor Bergamo and who even confesses the crime to the inspector but nobody believes him since the body's already been removed by Giovanni towards the end Giovanni meets up with Lucia and Nora at the airport and she says something about like she can't fight it anymore and again is that her in some kind of way falling for Giovanni or is that his idealized flashback I know what you mean because when I watched that scene again I kind of I took it I was just like yeah that's his imagined reality almost because it just seems so absurd compared to what we've seen but then yeah. almost like through the eyes of um, Giovanni you can almost see it as this like romance where he's fallen for his like wife's mother and then it all comes back to that scene where they first meet in the house and the kind of rape scene is the reality and that's him bookending it with these romantic notions with, with this romantic notion of him fantasizing of sleeping with <laughs> both Nora and Lucia <laughs> but because he's so selfish he doesn't care and you almost feel like he's somebody that would just justify it by like oh she's really horrible like Lucia she's emasculated me she just wants to go off with Eddie anyway so what does it matter yeah. and it's almost yeah. Hitchcockian isn't it his um, relationship with Nora he kind of seems to look for her everywhere doesn't he when he gets back to Rome and he can't find her and he obsesses over her and he phones her and it's like this she becomes this enigmatic woman who's not even really like, real anymore it's just this image in his head and he's trying to like make that like physical and real and um, marry that like notion he has of her with yeah the physical reality yeah no I agree he almost becomes Scotty in in Vertigo yeah, exactly he? yeah I just kind of felt it was almost like Vertigo like that moment we have to mention the scene that we mentioned when he fantasizes about sleeping with both of the women <laughs> how how great looking that scene is yeah it's like that kind of you know when we we always talk about like um most notable scenes i was thinking to myself i was like this is definitely peter's favorite scene not for you know what i mean like for the way it was shot <laughs> yeah no but this entirely white space and these women clad in white together there and again we've talked about that before as well that i mean some of these films aren't perhaps fully realized or as good as they could be i mean we're both big fans of this film but even if you don't enjoy this film i think that's the kind of moment that you want to watch anyway because it's such a great looking 
opening shot. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very visually appealing. And I love the way that Lucia almost like emerges from her mother. There's almost something yeah. quite Freudian about that. And then the way it's almost like they are two sides of this person. And it's they both represent this idealized image of a woman for Giovanni. Uh, yeah, it, it's brilliantly shot. Yeah, like you say, one of those scenes where maybe it gives people a false impression of the film because they probably be bowled over by it and then maybe be like quite disappointed that the rest of the film doesn't seem to match up to that. Oh, just a great kind of yeah. almost like yeah dreamlike scene and it's a beautifully shot film isn't it it's a beautifully shot film definitely and it's a film that in spite of how kind of bad it looks uh in terms of what kind of versions we've got out there at the moment you can see that this would benefit so much from a restored version a lot of films would but this is this is beautifully shot and it just seems like such a waste that it hasn't been released on dvd or blu-ray yet yeah i mean i think you know more about it than me is it something to do with the rights isn't it like an issue with the rights i think the rights might be quite expensive i mean i kind of see why it would be difficult to somebody to take a chance on a film like this because again it's not your typical jello but it's just such a beautifully realized film i think i find it really fascinating and looking at letterboxd a lot of the people that i follow have a really high opinion of the film so it deserves to be seen by more people i think yeah absolutely and i think like okay it might not be appreciated by some fans of the jello that are more into those kind of argento style films but i think it might attract that's more of the kind of art house crowd or people that are kind of yeah. a fan of this like esoteric like 1960s cinema like experimental 1960s cinema I know it's the 1970s but you know like I think it would really tap into yeah. that kind of fandom um, of films I think it is very much a 60s film even though it's made in 70s. I know because I keep referring to it as a 60s film and it's like I know it's made in 1971 but yeah it, it just feels like a 60s film I think it just sits well with those sorts of um, films I know Christian Söderström the director of Video Man is a great fan of this I was going to say because of course there's a discussion of Video Man isn't there about um, if yeah. the double's really a shadow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think to him and, and to me and to you as well that the fact that it's like a drama with these sort of thriller elements is quite appealing. Absolutely. And we don't get too hung up on categorization, don't we? We're not like kind of adhering to those strict rules. We don't sit and like check off a list or anything. We just feel like if anything has those kind of thriller elements, it warrants discussion. And it's fun talking yeah. about those other elements that might not be traditionally seen as like Jalo-esque. It's, it's interesting for us to kind of touch on like the politics or the dramatic elements, characterization, because like we've been talking about the stuff about politics and kind of the crisis of masculinity. And of course that is present in the Jalo in broader terms and sometimes in more detailed terms, but um, not often. So it's, I find it enjoyable to discuss that and to really drill down into it for sure is there anything you want to say about the um fact that eddie's gay well it obviously throws giovanni off because he's so hung up of his jealousy of lucia that he doesn't even realize that eddie's not a threat to him as he's gay basically all this happens because of his jealousy of lucia and her affection for eddie that's more or less what ends up killing him mm -hmm. since he's dumped the body and bergamo kills him because bergamo feels that he's stolen something that he belongs to him so giovanni's kind of killed because of his own jealousy and of bergamo's jealousy in the end it's almost like a great bit of black humor isn't it? Yeah. And I think there's something so fascinating about the reveal that Eddie's a gay man. I mean, like when I first watched this film, it, it never crossed my mind. And you almost think about that in terms of like your own like preconceived notions about, um, you know, these characters in these films, you just kind of assume that he's a straight man because of course we're seeing everything through Giovanni's eyes. But then when you go back, you're like, oh yeah, he, he wasn't a threat. You never really saw his character. He never exhibited any sort of behavior that really could be seen as threatening to Giovanni. Yeah, it's very much presented to the viewers. You say that Eddie is just this lost object for Lucia and the sexually 
celebrated freedom loving hippie who's you know I think I don't know if he went to Vietnam or he's you know he's certainly like in the US army yeah yeah because I think it's that he's like a former soldier again it's like trying to make him out to be this very masculine character who wants to steal Nora and Lucia away from him but it's just completely different so I really like that element of the film I think it's brilliant that reveal and I don't think it's like a cheap reveal either. I think it's almost, again, like questioning the reality that's presented through Giovanni and it makes the viewer question their own kind of preconceived notions, as I said. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because when you first said it, I felt like maybe it's a bit of a sort of cop-out from Guerreri. They don't touch upon it. But again, you don't really hear Eddie speak all that much. You don't really see all that much of the character. I mean, you see him in shots. He hasn't got a lot of dialogue scenes. He's got that scene when he's quoting Ginsberg. Mm. But apart from that, that's not really really all that much in in terms of dialogue for him yeah not at all it's, it's interesting that he just becomes this like all his angst and jealousies get projected onto um, Eddie who we yeah. know really nothing about other than he's this, so apparently this hippie all we know is that he kind of reads these texts and was in the army yeah it's that idea of you have these details of someone and then you make up your own image in your head and again I really think this film like I mean I, I can see why people would think it's dated like don't get me wrong and I can see a lot of the like political ideas and you know social ideas are, are very dated compared to now but I think there's just so much in here that is really relevant to today and think you know we all do that to some degree as we we kind of make images of people in our head whether you know like it's I say a lust object or somebody you know a romantic a source of our kind of romantic attentions or a friend or a nemesis or whatever and we just build this whole picture whether it's true or not Um, and then it's almost like the truth becomes irrelevant because it's all just about our own feelings and yeah it's interesting how that works you know versus the reality of the situation yeah there's a lot to identify with here about with the various characters and situations that they're put in or maybe that's me just projecting myself (laughs) no no (laughs) No, I think you're definitely right. I mean, that's that's what's so interesting about the film, I think. Yeah, because we never really know anyone, do we? Really? And I think it kind of forces you to think about that. And I think it also makes the film hold up well on multiple viewings, because I've seen this a couple of times now in preparation for this, and I've seen it numerous times before, and I still think it holds up really well. I mean, it's it's interesting seeing the, the dynamics between these players, and there's a lot you can pick up here, I think, in terms of the character work. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement I hope like our listeners feel the same way and for people that have like watched this film and really don't like it I mean absolutely valid maybe and repeated with repeated viewings you'll feel the same way but yeah I think it's a film that you should at least give another go if you're not 100% sold on it or feel kind of indifferent to it because I think that second viewing reveals some different aspects that you might not have thought of before right so great I think that's us pretty much covered everything right is there anything else you felt like bringing up no I think I've hit most of the points of my notes so um, I'm happy to move on. Yeah, I think that's the same for me as well. So should we move on to production yeah, history? Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the production history here. So I went into it a little bit there in the beginning with um, the film being produced by Gino Mordini for Claudio Cinematografica. The original novel was set in Montenegro, but in the film, the holiday destination has been relocated to North Africa instead. Shooting was supposed to start in Algeria in November 1970, but it wasn't until January 4th 1971 that the film went into production shooting with the English title The Woman in the Background by this time had been relocated to Morocco instead with Italian exteriors being shot in Rome the director of photography was Carlo Carlini a seasoned pro who'd shot his first film in 1949 and he'd worked with both Fellini and Roberto Rossellini as well as Toronto directors such as Tassari and Salima and Lenzi and the double was somewhere in the region of his 65th feature so like we said it's a 
is a great looking film with some wonderful imagery and you can just tell how good it would look in a decent edition. Carlini would later go on to shoot more jelly like The Bloodstained Butterfly, Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye, as well as Autopsy and The Pajama Girl Case. Have you got anything on production design I here? I do, I do have some things. I just thought I would talk a little bit more Ooh, about lovely. Morocco. That segs nicely in because I kind of touched upon like some of the way that the location is used and the visuals there and like obviously we have talked about the cinematography so it's nicely nicely yeah. connects. See as we've discussed the double takes place between Rome and Morocco with much of the focus placed on Morocco which is presented as this exotic locale with vast stretches of white sand where the sky and the sea merge into one. And Morocco as a location was very much in vogue in the early 1970s and you typically see these sorts of vistas and fashion photography from the era and many of the shots in the double have that look of fashion photography with these various long shots of Lucia lazing in the beach framed by the striking desert background. You also have local people presented in that sort of exotic otherworldly way contrasted against the radically different look of the young bourgeois characters on holiday. Um, but the location of Morocco is important as Giovanni's trip there is an attempt to break outside the confines of the frustrations of his life. He's searching for meaning in his life, or at least an escape from the uncomfortable realities of his feelings back home in Rome. However, when Giovanni returns to Rome, the city is presented in a somewhat similar fashion with white stone buildings and bright sunny skies echoing Giovanni's sentiments that everywhere is the same. He can't escape this mindset that everything is falling apart around him and a reminder of his deep unhappiness, lack of confidence and awareness of ageing and the detrimental impact that's having on him. Maybe this is slightly tenuous, but you could make comparisons here with Luigi Bazzoni's 1975 film Footprints of the Moon or his 1971 Shadow of the Fifth Chord, where we see aspects of the characters and the relationships conveyed through the film's environments. In this case, Lucia is often distanced from Giovanni, like those shots on the beach, um, perhaps showing the fractured nature of the relationship with the cinematography displaying the chasm between the couple and Giovanni's sense of restlessness. And Giovanni's lonely existential crisis is often emphasised by these long shots where he's walking in solitude and framed against the landscape. What it also helps to demonstrate is that Giovanni feels like an onlooker on his own life. He doesn't feel in control of the events that are happening to him, or is desperately trying to exert control over people and things he can't control. And despite the exotic location, Morocco doesn't really provide any change or any sort of epiphany for Giovanni. It's not an escape, and Eddie's presence and the conversations with Maria and Roger just further serve to highlight his feelings. So yeah, Morocco is used as a jet-setter-style location, but it's also used to emphasise that one can't truly escape from one's own emotional baggage, even if they physically remove themselves from the situation. I'll quickly mention um, some of the film's fashions. I mean, fashion-wise, it's very much Lucia's character that seals the show. Uh, we have this fantastic fashion moment right at the beginning of the film where she says, I couldn't be any more covered with these glasses. Um, and she's basically wearing like nothing at all but a pair of massive oversized sunglasses. And I think like, a throwaway line like that is rather nice as it emphasises her playful like nature, nature and Giovanni's neurosis about and insecurities surrounding his wife's beauty and life outside of the relationship. And there's a moment later on in the film when Lucia is at a dressing table in her bedroom in a brown short fringe wig about to go to a party. And she looks radically different and it feels like it's kind of conveying that disconnect between her and Giovanni and how she's becoming a completely different person to the one he thought he married. 
um, Lucia's transforming to someone else in front of his own eyes. I think, again, that touches on what we've talked about, though, about, you know, this is his perception of reality. I don't think she necessarily is changing into another person. No, but it's an interesting observation, one that I didn't make, but it really makes sense when you say it. It's difficult, isn't it? Because like you said, it's it's his vision of what's happening. And I don't want to say that she's been duplicitous because we don't, we don't really know what she was like before, but it feels almost like in his mind, he thinks she's not the woman he married because she doesn't want to go off and be stuffed with babies or whatever. Um, yeah. so I just thought that was quite an interesting scene on a more superficial level we have some rather interesting costumes like her matching crushed velvet shirt and newsboy cap um, as well as her suede um, lace-up choker that she wears the fringe bikini um, and that almost feels again like an example of Giovanni's ownership that's probably me reaching though because like chokers were everywhere in the 70s but I just kind of thought that was you know because it's almost like that kind of slave Leia look isn't it with yeah. um, I know this is before that obviously with almost like a collar no, no I mean it, it's well known that Return of the Jedi is <laughs> influenced by Johnny. I know we should think like who's <laughs> yeah like I could just we've got the desert we've got similar costume Giovanni is really Jabba the Hutt or is in herself as Jabba the Hutt for sure I mean we've been saying this for yeah, years yeah that's Patreon content incoming right there <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's there's also quite a distinctive moment where lucia envelops giovanni with the fabric of her gauzy white sleeve dress and we cut to that like um shot through the material which i thought was rather nice i thought it was like quite like, yeah. artsy and of course you know giovanni and nora are dressed in far more conservative slash classic fas- fashions giovanni doesn't really stand out he's well kept an example of just a regular guy which i suppose further serves to highlight that there's nothing really that special about him just another faceless regular member of society he certainly doesn't look like a kind of communist revolutionary does he no he certainly doesn't but then again he really isn't <laughs> exactly so it's just his appearance yeah. actually yeah signifies that that's not what he is yeah, yeah. That's just a few observations on the fashion again i'm reaching as always but it's just kind of fun no not it's at fun, all isn't it? some really good points <laughs> thank then. you i'm interested to hear what you want you're going to say about the music actually because i think it's quite an interesting score it's a score that's written by armando trovaioli and and it's another unreleased little gem i mean it's an upbeat lounge score with wordless vocalization by Nora Orlandi. And Nora Orlandi herself had worked with Guerreri on um, $10,000 for a Massacre, which is a really great score in itself. It's an upbeat lounge score, like I said, with a few cues taking on a slightly more sinister vibe as Giovanni is sort of drifting off in his mind thinking about his mother-in-law during his lovemaking to Lucia, for example. It also contains like a really simple melody that kind of sounds like somebody's playing it on the piano with two fingers or something, but I find it really effective. I really like the music school here i'm i really like troyoli's stuff it's, it's one of those that i really wish would be released so you could hear all the cues oh no it's such a shame isn't it because like you say it's a really lovely score i think it fits the film perfectly you know me i'm not very musically minded when it comes to to film scores but i think you know as i get older i really like appreciate his work something i maybe not paid attention to that much in the past but especially like when we have these conversations i feel like you really highlight aspects of the music that i might not have considered or it makes me you know reevaluate like the importance of music in these films the way that that it sometimes transforms during mm-hmm. these cues i think is really really effective and it takes the film to to a different place yeah like you say that's a fantastic point like about that slightly sinister nature because again you feel like oh yeah it's very bouncy 
but then that's something simmering under the surface. Yeah, I'll continue and talk a little bit about the film's general release as well. It received its censorship visa with an 18 certificate on the 23rd of July 1971 and was released in September. As you all know, it was it was in the midst of a jello boom with countless violent thrillers being inspired by the success of Dario Argento. So as we've discussed a few times now, Guerrieri's film, on the other hand, is very much rooted in the 60s, both in terms of the themes, but also the actual thrill aspect so it had limited success at the box office in fact it ended up being Guerrieri's worst performing film up until this point making uh, for him meager 371 million lira at the box office and the reviews went too kind either Signalazioni Cinematografiche called it a clumsy attempt to enrich uh, quotation marks mystery with a quotation marks thorough psychological study of the characters and you can kind of see why I, I think perhaps the film would have been a bigger success if it would have been produced at the time when it was first announced like the more violent thrillers that came after 1968 makes this seem kind of tame and dated in a way it would have and with the themes that we've discussed as well it would have worked so much better in 1969 for example than in 1971 yeah, I think you've um, highlighted the issue there perfectly. I mean, when people go into the cinema every week to see these various violent thrillers and then you see something like The Double, which is very much kind of like an outdated style of film at this point. You're kind yeah. of just wanting thrills and violence and fast-moving set pieces. And I think, again, like viewers now watching it, maybe you feel cheated on the mystery aspect. Um, and as much as these th- themes of, you know, the bourgeoisie are interesting to us, like very old hat probably at this point. I mean, not only in just yeah. in terms of like genre cinema, just, you know, like political cinema in general. Um, and it's not, it's not really saying anything particularly deep, let's face it. I mean, we're not going into this big discussion here about, you know, class structures and different political ideologies and which ones apply because it's it's not really you know it is there on a superficial level but there's not really much analysis that you can do there so i can see why it would be somewhat of a turn off at the box office and i'm not sure if it was because of that but unfortunately the double would turn out to be guerrier's last jallo but he would go on to direct several worthwhile crime films in the 1970s and like his thrillers these are sort of they were not your typical genre fair slightly off kilter to instead choosing to explore other aspects of police work, typically slightly more socially conscious and downbeat than the more action-filled antics of his brother and nephew or the more hard-hitting Lenzi. So Guerrieri directed two hugely successful films starring Maria Enrico Salerno, La Polizia al Servizio or Mafioso which made a billion at the box office in 1973, and City Under Siege, Un Uomo Città, which made a billion, 300 million in 1974. And he also directed a couple of slightly more formulaic, Young, Violent and Dangerous, starring Thomas Millian in, in an uncharacteristically restrained role in 1976, and then Covert Action, which was an attempt at an international thriller, starring David Jansen and Maurizio Merli and Corinne Cleary in 1978 which did decent but not brilliant box office in italy he also directed a war drama salvo da Quisiti in 1975 a couple of comedies and like every director working in genre film at the time a post-apocalyptic film the final executioner in 1984 his last film was the final contract in 1992 which is 
and you're like this a tv movie with fabio testi philip leroy and michael nori but this is unfortunately notoriously difficult to see and the only full-length copy that i've seen floating around is with a bulgarian dub so i haven't sat down to watch that but guerri is still alive living i believe in rome yeah he is um i know he was recorded for something uh, fairly recently right so that's it for the release of the film do you want to wrap this up i'll just offer some final thoughts Whilst not a conventional example of a giallo from the Fulon's golden period, The Double is a fascinating examination of a man facing an existential crisis in the wake of radical societal change, lensed through a non-linear narrative structure framed in a Chinese box-style mystery. The Double is an example of a more intellectually charged giallo that seeks to examine personal issues of the period, which despite their age still feel relevant in the present day. Here the emphasis isn't really on the mystery or the demise of Giovanni, but rather the events that led him to this point, the challenges he faces, and the manifestation of his failings. The Double is a beautifully photographed, unconventional shadow that provides a window into the sociocultural climate of Italy in the early 1970s, providing all the style and sexual titillation of the Italian thriller, with a liberal dose of political musing and a deeper rumination on the human condition. Yeah, so seek this out if you haven't seen it, and if you have seen it, it really deserves a rewatch. Rightio! Have a little bit of release news, not too much this month, but just thought it was worth sharing what we do have. So Arrow Video announced their February lineup, which includes a UHD release of Demons and Demons 2, which is very exciting news. Um, I feel like I've been teasing an upcoming Italian horror release from Arrow for a while now on this podcast. Um, I've known about this release since January, but just due to COVID, it's taken a bit longer than what was originally planned. So I'm really happy that it's finally been announced and everyone else is really happy. And I'm involved in a, in a small way, contributing an essay entitled The New Wave, demons and 1980s youth culture um but yeah demons fans will be sure to love this release it's packed with extras there's even a wee metropole um ticket which i think is like a really lovely like addition yeah Yeah. and i think all of that stuff will be worth the price of the set alone like and of course you get the films in great quality and we know michael mckenzie's done a stand-up job on this as always always, i know it's like is there any doubt (laughs) is there anything that man (laughs) can't do in other news uh, vinegar syndrome have announced the specs for their forgotten jolly volume 2 set which i think is going to be available soon or shipping soon um but you can order that on the website now anyway and yeah i do a visual essay for that sorry i'm not trying to like be like this is me shoehorning all my stuff into the podcast but yeah <laughs> i just like i mentioned i do a visual essay on the girl in room 2a but yeah again regardless of my involvement it's really worth picking up with the highlight undoubtedly being my dear killer um also contains the french sex murders so you know lots of fun jelly there so a, a good kind of month for releases because sometimes we're a bit thin on the ground but not long to wait for demons and forgotten jelly will be shipping soon is there any other release news or is that us the other one that i'm really looking forward to now which is out soon is queens of evil from on the macabre obviously not a giallo but it's such a great film and i'm just so happy to have it on disc and then Mondo macabre's got um blood ceremony or legend of blood castle coming out on blu-ray as well now which stars both evelyn and lucia bolso yeah, perfect isn't it as well so yeah plenty of interesting stuff coming in 2021 so i'd like i think we mentioned before that we think 2021 is going to be a fantastic year i know we're not trying to tease you or anything but we kind of know about bits there's the stuff that's been announced like crimes of the black cat for example that'll be coming out soon yeah. probably 2021 won't it but yeah we we do know about some stuff that's coming yeah, i think it's early january early january yeah so it's, it's going to be a great year a lot of stuff we know about is exciting that we can't reveal yet i'm sure there's also stuff that we don't know about that we'll be very excited to find out about so keep your fingers crossed that it's a fruitful year for shallow but certainly looking to be we just need the double next yeah, that's what we need that's what we need and in the next patron episode which we'll record sometime in the next couple 
couple of weeks, we'll talk about some of our favorite 2020 releases, some of our favorite discs, some of the releases that you have to buy and some that you might have missed and other bits and pieces. So tune in for that if you're a patron and if you're not, sign up at patreon.com slash fragmentspod. And as always, you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at fragmentspod and you can find our individual accounts on Twitter at Signia Award and at Rachel underscore Nisbet. And you can mail us at fragmentspod at gmail.com as well. And the music that you can hear is by the Old Sox, their cover of Ritz Ortolani's Seven Bloodstained Orchids. And this track and much more can be found at castleosox.com. That's it for this episode. We really hope you've enjoyed our discussion on the double. Thanks very much for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.